Exit. Pursued by a bear. Jobs had refused to quash Larry Ellison's takeover talk, and he had secretly sold his shares and been misleading about it. So Emilio finally became convinced that Jobs was gunning for him. I finally absorbed the fact that I had been too willing and too eager to believe he was on my team, Emilio recalled. Steve's plans to manipulate my termination were charging forward. Jobs was indeed bad-mouthing Emilio at every opportunity. He couldn't help himself, but there was a more important factor in turning the board against Emilio. Fred Anderson, the chief financial officer, saw it as his fiduciary duty to keep Ed Woolard and the board informed of Apple's dire situation. Fred was the guy telling me that cash was draining, people were leaving, and more key players were thinking of it, said Woolard. He made it clear the ship was going to hit the sand soon, and even he was thinking of leaving. That added to the worries Woolard already had from watching Emilio bumble the shareholders' meeting. At an executive session of the board in June, with Emilio out of the room, Woolard described to current directors how he calculated their odds. If we stay with Gill as CEO, I think there's only a 10% chance we will avoid bankruptcy, he said. If we fire him and convince Steve to come take over, we have a 60% chance of surviving. If we fire Gill, don't get Steve back and have to search for a new CEO, then we have a 40% chance of surviving. The board gave him authority to ask Jobs to return. Woolard and his wife flew to London, where they were planning to watch the Wimbledon tennis matches. He saw some of the tennis during the day, but spent his evenings in his suite at the Inn on the Park, calling people back in America where it was daytime. By the end of his stay, his telephone bill was $2,000. First he called Jobs. The board was going to fire Emilio, he said, and it wanted Jobs to come back as CEO. Jobs had been aggressive in deriding Emilio and pushing his own ideas about where to take Apple. But suddenly, when offered the cup, he became coy. I will help, he replied. As CEO? Woolard asked. Jobs said no. Woolard pushed hard for him to become at least the acting CEO. Again, Jobs demurred. I will be an advisor, he said, unpaid. He also agreed to become a board member. That was something he had yearned for, but declined to be the board chairman. That's all I can give now, he said. After rumors began circulating, he emailed a memo to Pixar employees assuring them that he was not abandoning them. I got a call from Apple's board of directors three weeks ago asking me to return to Apple as their CEO, he wrote. I declined. They then asked me to become chairman, and I again declined. So don't worry. The crazy rumors are just that. I have no plans to leave Pixar. You're stuck with me. Why did Jobs not seize the reins? Why was he reluctant to grab the job that for two decades he had seemed to desire? When I asked him, he said, We'd just taken Pixar public, and I was happy being CEO there. 
I never knew of anyone who served as CEO of two public companies, even temporarily, and I wasn't even sure it was legal. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was enjoying spending more time with my family. I was torn. I knew Apple was a mess, so I wondered, do I want to give up this nice lifestyle that I have? What are all the Pixar shareholders going to think? I talked to people I respected. I finally called Andy Grove at about eight one Saturday morning, too early. I gave him the pros and the cons, and in the middle he stopped me and said, Steve, I don't give a shit about Apple. I was stunned. It was then I realized that I do give a shit about Apple. I started it, and it is a good thing to have in the world. That was when I decided to go back on a temporary basis to help them hire a CEO. The claim that he was enjoying spending more time with his family was not convincing. He was never destined to win a Father of the Year trophy, even when he had spare time on his hands. He was getting better at paying heed to his children, especially Reed, but his primary focus was on his work. He was frequently aloof from his two younger daughters, estranged again from Lisa, and often prickly as a husband. So what was the real reason for his hesitancy in taking over at Apple? For all of his willfulness and insatiable desire to control things, Jobs was indecisive and reticent when he felt unsure about something. He craved perfection, and he was not always good at figuring out how to settle for something less. He did not like to wrestle with complexity or make accommodations. This was true in products, design, and furnishings for the house. It was also true when it came to personal commitments. If he knew for sure a course of action was right, he was unstoppable. But if he had doubts, he sometimes withdrew, preferring not to think about things that did not perfectly suit him. As happened when Emilio had asked him what role he wanted to play, Jobs would go silent and ignore situations that made him uncomfortable. This attitude arose partly out of his tendency to see the world in binary terms. A person was either a hero or a bozo. A product was either amazing or shit. But he could be stymied by things that were more complex, shaded, or nuanced. Getting married, buying the right sofa, committing to run a company. In addition, he didn't want to be set up for failure. I think Steve wanted to assess whether Apple could be saved, Fred Anderson said. Woolard and the board decided to go ahead and fire Emilio, even though Jobs was not yet forthcoming about how active a role he would play as an advisor. Emilio was about to go on a picnic with his wife, children, and grandchildren when the call came from Woolard in London. We need you to step down, Woolard said simply. Emilio replied that it was not a good time to discuss this, but Woolard felt he had to persist. We are going to announce that we're replacing you. Emilio resisted. Remember, Ed, I told the board it was going to take three years to get this company back on its feet again, he said. I'm not even halfway through. The board is at the place where we don't want to discuss it further. Woolard replied. Emilio asked who knew about the decision, 
and Woolard told him the truth. The rest of the board, plus jobs. Steve was one of the people we talked to about this, Woolard said. His view is that you're a really nice guy, but you don't know much about the computer industry. Why in the world would you involve Steve in a decision like this? Emilio replied, getting angry. Steve is not even a member of the board of directors. So what the hell is he doing in any of this conversation? But Woolard didn't back down, and Emilio hung up to carry on with the family picnic before telling his wife. At times, Jobs displayed a strange mixture of prickliness and neediness. He usually didn't care one iota what people thought of him. He could cut people off and never care to speak to them again. Yet sometimes he also felt a compulsion to explain himself. So that evening, Emilio received, to his surprise, a phone call from Jobs. Gee, Gil, I just wanted you to know. I talked to Ed today about this thing, and I really feel bad about it, he said. I want you to know that I had absolutely nothing to do with this turn of events. It was a decision the board made, but they had asked me for advice and counsel. He told Emilio he respected him for having the highest integrity of anyone I've ever met and went on to give some unsolicited advice. Take six months off, Jobs told him. When I got thrown out of Apple, I immediately went back to work, and I regretted it. He offered to be a sounding board if Emilio ever wanted more advice. Emilio was stunned, but managed to mumble a few words of thanks. He turned to his wife and recounted what Jobs said. In ways, I still like the man, but I don't believe him, he told her. I was totally taken in by Steve, she said, and I really feel like an idiot. Join the crowd, her husband replied. Steve Wozniak, who was himself now an informal advisor to the company, was thrilled that Jobs was coming back. He forgave easily. It was just what we needed, he said, because whatever you think of Steve, he knows how to get the magic back. Nor did Jobs' triumph over Emilio surprise him. As he told Wired shortly after it happened, Gil Emilio meets Steve Jobs, game over. That Monday, Apple's top employees were summoned to the auditorium. Emilio came in looking calm and relaxed. Well, I'm sad to report that it's time for me to move on, he said. Fred Anderson, who had agreed to be interim CEO, spoke next, and he made it clear that he would be taking his cues from Jobs. Then, exactly twelve years since he had lost power in a July 4th weekend struggle, Jobs walked back on stage at Apple. It immediately became clear that whether or not he wanted to admit it publicly or even to himself, Jobs was going to take control and not be a mere advisor. As soon as he came on stage that day, wearing shorts, sneakers, and a black turtleneck, he got to work reinvigorating his beloved institution. Okay, tell me what's wrong with this place, he said. There were some murmurings, but Jobs cut them off. It's the products, he answered. So what's wrong with the products? 
Again, there were a few attempts at an answer, until Jobs broke in to hand down the correct answer. The products suck, he shouted. There's no sex in them anymore. Woolard was able to coax Jobs to agree that his role as an advisor would be a very active one. Jobs approved a statement saying that he had agreed to step up my involvement with Apple for up to 90 days, helping them until they hire a new CEO. The clever formulation that Woolard used in his statement was that Jobs was coming back as an advisor leading the team. Jobs took a small office next to the boardroom on the executive floor, conspicuously eschewing Emilio's big corner office. He got involved in all aspects of the business, product design, where to cut, supplier negotiations, and advertising agency review. He believed that he had to stop the hemorrhaging of top Apple employees, and to do so, he wanted to reprice their stock options. Apple stock had dropped so low that the options had become worthless. Jobs wanted to lower the exercise price so they would be valuable again. At the time, that was legally permissible, but it was not considered good corporate practice. On his first Thursday back at Apple, Jobs called for a telephonic board meeting and outlined the problem. The directors balked. They asked for time to do a legal and financial study of what the change would mean. It has to be done fast, Jobs told them. We're losing good people. Even his supporter, Ed Woolard, who headed the compensation committee, objected. At DuPont, we never did such a thing, he said. You brought me here to fix this thing, and people are the key, Jobs argued. When the board proposed a study that could take two months, Jobs exploded. Are you nuts? He paused for a long moment of silence, then continued. Guys, if you don't want to do this, I'm not coming back on Monday, because I've got thousands of key decisions to make that are far more difficult than this. And if you can't throw your support behind this kind of decision, I will fail. So if you can't do this, I'm out of here, and you can blame it on me. You can say Steve wasn't up for the job. The next day, after consulting with the board, Woolard called Jobs back. We're going to approve this, he said, but some of the board members don't like it. We feel like you've put a gun to our head. The options for the top team, Jobs had none, were reset at $13.25 which was the price of the stock the day Emilio was ousted. Instead of declaring victory and thanking the board, Jobs continued to seethe at having to answer to a board he didn't respect. Stop the train. This isn't going to work, he told Woolard. This company is in shambles, and I don't have time to wet-nurse the board. So I need all of you to resign, or else I'm going to resign and not come back on Monday. The one person who could stay, he said, was Woolard. Most members of the board were aghast. Jobs was still refusing to commit himself to coming back full-time or being anything more than an advisor, yet he felt he had the power to force them to leave. The hard truth, however, was that he did have that power over them. 
They could not afford for him to storm off in a fury, nor was the prospect of remaining an Apple board member very enticing by then. After all they'd been through, most were glad to be let off, Woolard recalled. Once again, the board acquiesced. It made only one request. Would he permit one other director to stay in addition to Woolard? It would help the optics. Jobs assented. They were an awful board, a terrible board, he later said. I agreed they could keep Ed Woolard and a guy named Gareth Chang, who turned out to be a zero. He wasn't terrible, just a zero. Woolard, on the other hand, was one of the best board members I've ever seen. He was a prince, one of the most supportive and wise people I've ever met. Among those being asked to resign was Mike Markala, who in 1976, as a young venture capitalist, had visited the job's garage, fallen in love with a nascent computer on the workbench, guaranteed a $250,000 line of credit, and become the third partner and one-third owner of the new company. Over the subsequent two decades, he was the one constant on the board, ushering in and out a variety of CEOs. He had supported Jobs at times, but also clashed with him, most notably when he sided with Scully in the showdowns of 1985. With Jobs returning, he knew that it was time for him to leave. Jobs could be cutting and cold, especially toward people who crossed him, but he could also be sentimental about those who had been with him from the early days. Wozniak fell into that favored category, of course, even though they had drifted apart. So did Andy Hertzfeld and a few others from the Macintosh team. In the end, Mike Markala did as well. I felt deeply betrayed by him, but he was like a father and I always cared about him, Jobs later recalled. So when the time came to ask him to resign from the Apple board, Jobs drove to Markala's chateau-like mansion in the Woodside Hills to do it personally. As usual, he asked to take a walk, and they strolled the grounds to a redwood grove with a picnic table. He told me he wanted a new board because he wanted to start fresh, Markala said. He was worried that I might take it poorly, and he was relieved when I didn't. They spent the rest of the time talking about where Apple should focus in the future. Jobs's ambition was to build a company that would endure, and he asked Markala what the formula for that would be. Markala replied that lasting companies know how to reinvent themselves. Hewlett-Packard had done that repeatedly. It started as an instrument company, then became a calculator company, then a computer company. Apple has been sidelined by Microsoft in the PC business, Markala said. You've got to reinvent the company to do some other thing, like other consumer products or devices. You've got to be like a butterfly and have a metamorphosis. Jobs didn't say much, but he agreed. The old board met in late July to ratify the transition. Woolard, who was as genteel as Jobs was prickly, was mildly taken aback when Jobs appeared dressed in jeans and sneakers, and he worried that Jobs might start berating the veteran board members for screwing up. But Jobs merely offered a pleasant, 
Hi, everyone. They got down to the business of voting to accept the resignations, elect Jobs to the board, and empower Woolard and Jobs to find new board members. Jobs' first recruit was, not surprisingly, Larry Ellison. He said he would be pleased to join, but he hated attending meetings. Jobs said it would be fine if he came to only half of them. After a while, Ellison was coming to only a third of the meetings. Jobs took a picture of him that had appeared on the cover of Business Week and had it blown up to life-size and pasted on a cardboard cutout to put in his chair. Jobs also brought in Bill Campbell, who had run marketing at Apple in the early 1980s and had been caught in the middle of the Scully-Jobs clash. Campbell had ended up sticking with Scully, but he had grown to dislike him so much that Jobs forgave him. Now he was the CEO of Intuit and a walking buddy of Jobs. We were sitting out in the back of his house, recalled Campbell, who lived only five blocks from Jobs in Palo Alto, and he said he was going back to Apple and wanted me on the board. I said, holy shit, of course I will do that. Campbell had been a football coach at Columbia, and his great talent, Jobs said, was to get A performances out of B players. At Apple, Jobs told him, he would get to work with A players. Woolard helped bring in Jerry York, who had been the chief financial officer at Chrysler and then IBM. Others were considered and then rejected by Jobs, including Meg Whitman, who was then the manager of Hasbro's Play School division and had been a strategic planner at Disney. In 1998, she became CEO of eBay, and she later ran unsuccessfully for governor of California. Over the years, Jobs would bring in some strong leaders to serve on the Apple board, including Al Gore, Eric Schmidt of Google, Art Levinson of Genentech, Mickey Drexler of The Gap and J. Crew, and Andrea Jung of Avon. But he always made sure they were loyal, sometimes loyal to a fault. Despite their stature, they seemed at times awed or intimidated by Jobs, and they were eager to keep him happy. At one point, he invited Arthur Levitt, the former SEC chairman, to become a board member. Levitt, who bought his first Macintosh in 1984 and was proudly addicted to Apple computers, was thrilled. He was excited to visit Cupertino, where he discussed the role with Jobs. But then Jobs read a speech Levitt had given about corporate governance, which argued that boards should play a strong and independent role, and he telephoned to withdraw the invitation. Arthur, I don't think you'd be happy on our board, and I think it best if we not invite you, Levitt said Jobs told him. Frankly, I think some of the issues you raised, while appropriate for some companies, really don't apply to Apple's culture. Levitt later wrote, I was floored. It's plain to me that Apple's board is not designed to act independently of the CEO. Macworld Boston, August 1997 The staff memo announcing the repricing of Apple's stock options was signed Steve and the executive team, and it soon became public that he was running all of the company's product review meetings. 
These and other indications that Jobs was now deeply engaged at Apple helped push the stock up from about $13 to $20 during July. It also created a frisson of excitement as the Apple faithful gathered for the August 1997 Macworld in Boston. More than 5,000 showed up hours in advance to cram into the Castle Convention Hall of the Park Plaza Hotel for Jobs's keynote speech. They came to see their returning hero and to find out whether he was really ready to lead them again. Huge cheers erupted when a picture of Jobs from 1984 was flashed on the overhead screen. Steve, 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 the crowd started to chant, even as he was still being introduced. When he finally strode on stage, wearing a black vest, collarless white shirt, jeans, and an impish smile, the screams and flashbulbs rivaled those for any rock star. At first, he punctured the excitement by reminding them of where he officially worked. I'm Steve Jobs, the chairman and CEO of Pixar, he introduced himself, flashing a slide on screen with that title. Then he explained his role at Apple. I, like a lot of other people, are pulling together to help Apple get healthy again. But as Jobs paced back and forth across the stage, changing the overhead slides with a clicker in his hand, it was clear that he was now in charge at Apple and was likely to remain so. He delivered a carefully crafted presentation using no notes on why Apple's sales had fallen by 30% over the previous two years. There are a lot of great people at Apple, but they're doing the wrong things because the plan has been wrong, he said. I've found people who can't wait to fall into line behind a good strategy, but there just hasn't been one. The crowd again erupted in yelps, whistles, and cheers. As he spoke, his passion poured forth with increasing intensity, and he began saying we and I rather than they when referring to what Apple would be doing. I think you still have to think differently to buy an Apple computer, he said. The people who buy them do think different. They are the creative spirits in this world, and they're out to change the world. We make tools for those kinds of people. When he stressed the word we in that sentence, he cupped his hands and tapped his fingers on his chest. And then, in his final peroration, he continued to stress the word we as he talked about Apple's future. We, too, are going to think differently and serve the people who have been buying our products from the beginning. Because a lot of people think they're crazy, but in that craziness, we see genius. During the prolonged standing ovation, People looked at each other in awe, and a few wiped tears from their eyes. Jobs had made it very clear that he and the we of Apple were one. The Microsoft Pact The climax of Jobs's August 1997 Macworld appearance was a bombshell announcement, one that made the cover of both Time and Newsweek. Near the end of his speech, he paused for a sip of water 
and began to talk in more subdued tones. Apple lives in an ecosystem, he said. It needs help from other partners. Relationships that are destructive don't help anybody in this industry. For dramatic effect, he paused again and then explained, I'd like to announce one of our first new partnerships today, a very meaningful one, and that is one with Microsoft. The Microsoft and Apple logos appeared together on the screen as people gasped. Apple and Microsoft had been at war for a decade over a variety of copyright and patent issues, most notably whether Microsoft had stolen the look and feel of Apple's graphical user interface. Just as Jobs was being eased out of Apple in 1985, John Scully had struck a surrender deal. Microsoft could license the Apple GUI for Windows 1.0, and in return, it would make Excel exclusive to the Mac for up to two years. In 1988, after Microsoft came out with Windows 2.0, Apple sued. Scully contended that the 1985 deal did not apply to Windows 2.0 and that further refinements to Windows, such as copying Bill Atkinson's trick of clipping overlapping windows, had made the infringement more blatant. By 1997, Apple had lost the case and various appeals, but remnants of the litigation and threats of new suits lingered. In addition, President Clinton's Justice Department was preparing a massive antitrust case against Microsoft. Jobs invited the lead prosecutor, Joel Klein, to Palo Alto. Don't worry about extracting a huge remedy against Microsoft, Jobs told him over coffee. Instead, simply keep them tied up in litigation. That would allow Apple the opportunity, Jobs explained, to make an end run around Microsoft and start offering competing products. Under Emilio, the showdown had become explosive. Microsoft refused to commit to developing Word and Excel for future Macintosh operating systems, which could have destroyed Apple. In defense of Bill Gates, he was not simply being vindictive. It was understandable that he was reluctant to commit to developing for a future Macintosh operating system when no one, including the ever-changing leadership at Apple, seemed to know what that new operating system would be. Right after Apple bought Next, Emilio and Jobs flew together to visit Microsoft but Gates had trouble figuring out which of them was in charge. A few days later, he called Jobs privately. Hey, what the fuck? Am I supposed to put my applications on the next OS? Gates asked. Jobs responded by making smart-ass remarks about Gill, Gates recalled, and suggesting that the situation would soon be clarified. When the leadership issue was partly resolved by Emilio's ouster, one of Jobs's first phone calls was to Gates. Jobs recalled, I called up Bill and said, I'm going to turn this thing around. Bill always had a soft spot for Apple. We got him into the application software business. The first Microsoft apps were Excel and Word for the Mac. So I called him and said, I need help. Microsoft was walking over Apple's patents. 
I said, if we kept up our lawsuits, a few years from now, we could win a billion-dollar patent suit. You know it, and I know it. But Apple's not going to survive that long if we're at war. I know that. So let's figure out how to settle this right away. All I need is a commitment that Microsoft will keep developing for the Mac and an investment by Microsoft in Apple so it has a stake in our success. When I recounted to him what Jobs said, Gates agreed it was accurate. We had a group of people who liked working on the Mac stuff, and we liked the Mac, Gates recalled. He had been negotiating with Emilio for six months, and the proposals kept getting longer and more complicated. So Steve comes in and says, Hey, that deal is too complicated. What I want is a simple deal. I want the commitment, and I want an investment. And so we put that together in just four weeks. Gates and his chief financial officer, Greg Maffei, made the trip to Palo Alto to work out the framework for a deal, and then Maffei returned alone the following Sunday to work on the details. When he arrived at Jobs' home, Jobs grabbed two bottles of water out of the refrigerator and took Maffei for a walk around the Palo Alto neighborhood. Both men wore shorts, and Jobs walked barefoot. As they sat in front of a Baptist church, Jobs cut to the core issues. These are the things we care about, he said. A commitment to make software for the Mac and an investment. Although the negotiations went quickly, the final details were not finished until hours before Jobs' Macworld speech in Boston. He was rehearsing at the Park Plaza Castle when his cell phone rang. Hi, Bill, he said as his words echoed through the old hall. Then he walked to a corner and spoke in a soft tone so others couldn't hear. The call lasted an hour. Finally, the remaining deal points were resolved. Bill, thank you for your support of this company, Jobs said as he crouched in his shorts. I think the world's a better place for it. During his Macworld keynote address, Jobs walked through the details of the Microsoft deal. At first there were groans and hisses from the faithful. Particularly galling was Jobs' announcement that as part of the Peace Pact, Apple has decided to make Internet Explorer its default browser on the Macintosh. The audience erupted in boos, and Jobs quickly added, Since we believe in choice, we're going to be shipping other Internet browsers as well, and the user can, of course change their default should they choose to. There were some laughs and scattered applause. The audience was beginning to come around, especially when he announced that Microsoft would be investing $150 million in Apple and getting non-voting shares. But the mellower mood was shattered for a moment when Jobs made one of the few visual and public relations gaffes of his onstage career. I happen to have a special guest with me today, via satellite downlink, he said, and suddenly Bill Gates's face appeared on the huge screen looming over Jobs and the auditorium. There was a thin smile on Gates's face that flirted with being a smirk. The audience gasped in horror, followed by some boos and catcalls. 
The scene was such a brutal echo of the 1984 Big Brother ad that you half expected and hoped that an athletic woman would suddenly come running down the aisle and vaporize the screenshot with a well-thrown hammer. But it was all for real, and Gates, unaware of the jeering, began speaking on the satellite link from Microsoft headquarters. Some of the most exciting work that I've done in my career has been the work that I've done with Steve on the Macintosh, he intoned in his high-pitched sing-song. As he went on to tout the new version of Microsoft Office that was being made for the Macintosh, the audience quieted down and then slowly seemed to accept the new world order. Gates even was able to rouse some applause when he said that the new Mac versions of Word and Excel would be in many ways more advanced than what we've done on the Windows platform. Jobs realized that the image of Gates looming over him and the audience was a mistake. I wanted him to come to Boston, Jobs later said. That was my worst and stupidest staging event ever. It was bad because it made me look small, and Apple look small, and as if everything was in Bill's hands. Gates, likewise, was embarrassed when he saw the videotape of the event. I didn't know that my face was going to be blown up to looming proportions, he said. Jobs tried to reassure the audience with an impromptu sermon. If we want to move forward and see Apple healthy again, we have to let go of a few things here, he told the audience. We have to let go of this notion that for Apple to win, Microsoft has to lose. I think if we want Microsoft Office on the Mac, we better treat the company that puts it out with a little bit of gratitude. The Microsoft announcement, along with Jobs' passionate re-engagement with the company, provided a much-needed jolt for Apple. By the end of the day, its stock had skyrocketed $6.56, or 33%, to close at $26.31, twice the price of the day Emilio resigned. The one-day jump added $830 million to Apple's stock market capitalization. The company was back from the edge of the grave. Chapter 25 Think Different Jobs as I-CEO Here's to the crazy ones. Lee Clow, the creative director at Shiat Day, who had done the great 1984 ad for the launch of the Macintosh, was driving in Los Angeles in early July 1997 when his car phone rang. It was Jobs. Hi, Lee, this is Steve, he said. Guess what? Emilio just resigned. Can you come up here? Apple was going through a review to select a new agency, and Jobs was not impressed by what he had seen. So he wanted Clow and his firm, by then called TBWA Shiat Day, to compete for the business. We have to prove that Apple is still alive, Jobs said, and that it still stands for something special. Clow said that he didn't pitch for accounts. You know our work, he said, but Jobs begged him. It would be hard to reject all the others that were making pitches, 
including BBDO and Arnold Worldwide, and bring back an old crony, as Jobs put it. Clow agreed to fly up to Cupertino with something they could show. Recounting the scene years later, Jobs started to cry. This chokes me up. This really chokes me up. It was so clear that Lee loved Apple so much. Here was the best guy in advertising, and he hadn't pitched in ten years. Yet here he was, and he was pitching his heart out, because he loved Apple as much as we did. He and his team had come up with this brilliant idea, Think Different, and it was ten times better than anything the other agencies showed. It choked me up, and it still makes me cry to think about it, both the fact that Lee cared so much and also how brilliant his Think Different idea was. Every once in a while, I find myself in the presence of purity, purity of spirit and love, and I always cry. It always just reaches in and grabs me. That was one of those moments. There was a purity about that I will never forget. I cried in my office as he was showing me the idea, and I still cry when I think about it. Jobs and Clow agreed that Apple was one of the great brands of the world, probably in the top five based on emotional appeal, but they needed to remind folks what was distinctive about it. So they wanted a brand image campaign, not a set of advertisements featuring products. It was designed to celebrate not what the computers could do, but what creative people could do with the computers. This wasn't about processor speed or memory, Jobs recalled. It was about creativity. It was directed not only at potential customers, but also at Apple's own employees. We at Apple had forgotten who we were. One way to remember who you are is to remember who your heroes are. That was the genesis of that campaign. Clow and his team tried a variety of approaches that praised the crazy ones who think different. They did one video with the seal song, Crazy. We're never going to survive unless we get a little crazy, but couldn't get the rights to it. Then they tried versions using a recording of Robert Frost reading The Road Not Taken and of Robin Williams's speeches from Dead Poets Society. Eventually, they decided they needed to write their own text. Their draft began, Here's to the Crazy Ones. Jobs was as demanding as ever. When Clow's team flew up with a version of the text, he exploded at the young copywriter. This is shit, he yelled. It's advertising agency shit and I hate it. It was the first time the young copywriter had met Jobs, and he stood there mute. He never went back. But those who could stand up to Jobs, including Clow and his teammates Ken Siegel and Craig Tanimoto, were able to work with him to create a tone poem that he liked. In its original 60-second version, it read, Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things. They push the human race forward, and while some may see them as the crazy ones, 
we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Jobs, who could identify with each of those sentiments, wrote some of the lines himself, including, They Push the Human Race Forward. By the time of the Boston Macworld in early August, they had produced a rough version. They agreed it was not ready, but Jobs used the concepts and the think-different phrase in his keynote speech there. There's a germ of a brilliant idea there, he said at the time. Apple is about people who think outside the box, who want to use computers to help them change the world. They debated the grammatical issue. If different was supposed to modify the verb think, it should be an adverb, as in think differently. But Jobs insisted that he wanted different to be used as a noun, as in think victory or think beauty. Also, it echoed colloquial use, as in think big. Jobs later explained, we discussed whether it was correct before we ran it. It's grammatical, if you think about what we're trying to say. It's not think the same. It's think different. Think a little different. Think a lot different. Think different. Think differently wouldn't hit the meaning for me. In order to evoke the spirit of Dead Poets Society, Clow and Jobs wanted to get Robin Williams to read the narration. His agent said that Williams didn't do ads, so Jobs tried to call him directly. He got through to Williams's wife, who would not let him talk to the actor because she knew how persuasive he could be. They also considered Maya Angelou and Tom Hanks. At a fundraising dinner featuring Bill Clinton that fall, Jobs pulled the president aside and asked him to telephone Hanks to talk him into it, but the president pocket-vetoed the request. They ended up with Richard Dreyfus, who was a dedicated Apple fan. In addition to the television commercials, they created one of the most memorable print campaigns in history. Each ad featured a black-and-white portrait of an iconic historical figure with just the Apple logo and the words, Think Different in the corner. Making it particularly engaging was that the faces were not captioned. Some of them, Einstein, Gandhi, Lenin, Dylan, Picasso, Edison, Chaplin, King, were easy to identify. But others caused people to pause, puzzle, and maybe ask a friend to put a name to the face. Martha Graham, Ansel Adams, Richard Feynman, Maria Callas, Frank Lloyd Wright, James Watson, Amelia Earhart. Most were Jobs' personal heroes. They tended to be creative people who had taken risks, defied failure, and bet their career on doing things in a different way. A photography buff, he became involved in making sure they had the perfect, iconic portraits. This is not the right picture of Gandhi, he erupted to Clow at one point. Clow explained that the famous Margaret Bork White photograph of Gandhi at the spinning wheel was owned by Time Life Pictures and was not available for commercial use. So Jobs called Norman Perlstein, the editor-in-chief of Time Incorporated, and badgered him into making an exception.
He called Eunice Shriver to convince her family to release a picture that he loved of her brother Bobby Kennedy touring Appalachia, and he talked to Jim Henson's children personally to get the right shot of the late Muppeteer. He likewise called Yoko Ono for a picture of her late husband, John Lennon. She sent him one, but it was not Jobs' favorite. Before it ran, I was in New York, and I went to this small Japanese restaurant that I love and let her know I would be there, he recalled. When he arrived, she came over to his table. This is a better one, she said, handing him an envelope. I thought I would see you, so I had this with me. It was the classic photo of her and John in bed together, holding flowers, and it was the one that Apple ended up using. I can see why John fell in love with her, Jobs recalled. The narration by Richard Dreyfus worked well, but Lee Clow had another idea. What if Jobs did the voiceover himself? You really believe this, Clow told him. You should do it. So Jobs sat in a studio, did a few takes, and soon produced a voice track that everyone liked. The idea was that if they used it, they would not tell people who was speaking the words just as they didn't caption the iconic pictures. Eventually, people would figure out it was Jobs. This will be really powerful to have it in your voice, Clow argued. It will be a way to reclaim the brand. Jobs couldn't decide whether to use the version with his voice or to stick with Dreyfus. Finally, the night came when they had to ship the ad. It was due to air, appropriately enough, on the television premiere of Toy Story. As was often the case, Jobs did not like to be forced to make a decision. He told Clow to ship both versions. This would give him until the morning to decide. When morning came, Jobs called and told them to use the Dreyfus version. If we use my voice, when people find out they will say it's about me, he told Clow, it's not. It's about Apple. Ever since he left the Apple commune, Jobs had defined himself, and by extension Apple, as a child of the counterculture. In ads such as Think Different in 1984, he positioned the Apple brand so that it reaffirmed his own rebel streak, even after he became a billionaire, and it allowed other baby boomers and their kids to do the same. From when I first met him as a young guy, He's had the greatest intuition of the impact he wants his brand to have on people, said Clow. Very few other companies or corporate leaders, perhaps none, could have gotten away with the brilliant audacity of associating their brand with Gandhi, Einstein, Picasso, and the Dalai Lama. Jobs was able to encourage people to define themselves as anti-corporate, creative, innovative rebels, simply by the computer they used. Steve created the only lifestyle brand in the tech industry, Larry Ellison said. There are cars people are proud to have, Porsche, Ferrari, Prius, because what I drive says something about me. People feel the same way about an Apple product. Starting with the Think Different campaign and continuing through the rest of his years at Apple, Jobs held a freewheeling three-hour meeting every Wednesday afternoon 
with his top agency, marketing, and communications people to kick around messaging strategy. There's not a CEO on the planet who deals with marketing the way Steve does, said Clow. Every Wednesday, he approves each new commercial, print ad, and billboard. At the end of the meeting, he would often take Clow and his two agency colleagues, Duncan Milner and James Vincent, to Apple's closely guarded design studio to see what products were in the works. He gets very passionate and emotional when he shows us what's in development, said Vincent. By sharing with his marketing gurus his passion for the products as they were being created, he was able to ensure that almost every ad they produced was infused with his emotion. I-C-E-O As he was finishing work on the Think Different ad, Jobs did some different thinking of his own. He decided that he would officially take over running the company, at least on a temporary basis. He had been the de facto leader since Emilio's ouster ten weeks earlier, but only as an advisor. Fred Anderson had the titular role of interim CEO. On September 16, 1997, Jobs announced that he would take over that title, which inevitably got abbreviated as I-CEO. His commitment was tentative. He took no salary and signed no contract. But he was not tentative in his actions. He was in charge, and he did not rule by consensus. That week he gathered his top managers and staff in the Apple Auditorium for a rally, followed by a picnic featuring beer and vegan food, to celebrate his new role and the company's new ads. He was wearing shorts, was walking around the campus barefoot, and had a stubble of beard. I've been back about ten weeks, working really hard, he said, looking tired but deeply determined. What we're trying to do is not highfalutin. We're trying to get back to the basics of great products, great marketing, and great distribution. Apple has drifted away from doing the basics really well. For a few more weeks, Jobs and the board kept looking for a permanent CEO. Various names surfaced, George M.C. Fisher of Kodak, Sam Palmasano at IBM, Ed Zander at Sun Microsystems, but most of the candidates were understandably reluctant to consider becoming CEO if Jobs was going to remain an active board member. The San Francisco Chronicle reported that Zander declined to be considered because he didn't want Steve looking over his shoulder, second-guessing him on every decision. At one point, Jobs and Ellison pulled a prank on a clueless computer consultant who was campaigning for the job. They sent him an email saying that he had been selected, which caused both amusement and embarrassment when stories appeared in the papers that they were just toying with him. By December, it had become clear that Jobs's ICEO status had evolved from interim to indefinite. As Jobs continued to run the company, the board quietly deactivated its search. I went back to Apple and tried to hire a CEO, with the help of a recruiting agency, for almost four months, he recalled. But they didn't produce the right people. That's why I finally stayed. Apple was in no shape to attract anybody good.
The problem Jobs faced was that running two companies was brutal. Looking back on it, he traced his health problems back to those days. It was rough, really rough, the worst time in my life. I had a young family, I had Pixar, I would go to work at 7 a.m. and I'd get back at 9 at night, and the kids would be in bed. And I couldn't speak, I literally couldn't, I was so exhausted. I couldn't speak to Laureen, all I could do was watch a half hour of TV and vegetate. It got close to killing me. I was driving up to Pixar and down to Apple in a black Porsche convertible, and I started to get kidney stones. I would rush to the hospital, and the hospital would give me a shot of Demerol in the butt, and eventually I would pass it. Despite the grueling schedule, the more that Jobs immersed himself in Apple, the more he realized that he would not be able to walk away. When Michael Dell was asked at a computer trade show in October 1997 what he would do if he were Steve Jobs and taking over Apple, he replied, I'd shut it down and give the money back to the shareholders. Jobs fired off an email to Dell. CEOs are supposed to have class, it said. I can see that isn't an opinion you hold. Jobs liked to stoke up rivalries as a way to rally his team. He had done so with IBM and Microsoft, and he did so with Dell. When he called together his managers to institute a build-to-order system for manufacturing and distribution, Jobs used as a backdrop a blown-up picture of Michael Dell with a target on his face. We're coming after you, buddy, he said to cheers from his troops. One of his motivating passions was to build a lasting company. At age 12, when he got a summer job at Hewlett-Packard, he learned that a properly run company could spawn innovation far more than any single creative individual. I discovered that the best innovation is sometimes the company, the way you organize a company, he recalled. The whole notion of how you build a company is fascinating. When I got the chance to come back to Apple, I realized that I would be useless without the company, and that's why I decided to stay and rebuild it. Killing the Clones One of the great debates about Apple was whether it should have licensed its operating system more aggressively to other computer makers the way Microsoft licensed Windows. Wozniak had favored that approach from the beginning. We had the most beautiful operating system, he said, but to get it, you had to buy our hardware at twice the price. That was a mistake. What we should have done was calculate an appropriate price to license the operating system. Alan Kay, the star of Xerox Park, who came to Apple as a fellow in 1984, also fought hard for licensing the Mac OS software. Software people are always multi-platform because you want to run on everything, he recalled, and that was a huge battle, probably the largest battle I lost at Apple. Bill Gates, who was building a fortune by licensing Microsoft's operating system, had urged Apple to do the same in 1985, just as Jobs was being eased out. Gates believed that even if Apple took away some of Microsoft's operating system customers, Microsoft could make money by creating versions of its application software, such as Word and Excel, 
for the users of the Macintosh and its clones. I was trying to do everything to get them to be a strong licensor, he recalled. He sent a formal memo to Scully, making the case. The industry has reached the point where it is now impossible for Apple to create a standard out of their innovative technology without support from, and the resulting credibility of, other personal computer manufacturers, he argued. Apple should license Macintosh technology to three to five significant manufacturers for the development of Mac compatibles. Gates got no reply, so he wrote a second memo suggesting some companies that would be good at cloning the Mac, and he added, I want to help in any way I can with the licensing. Please give me a call. Apple resisted licensing out the Macintosh operating system until 1994 when CEO Michael Spindler allowed two small companies, Power Computing and Radius, to make Macintosh clones. When Gil Emilio took over in 1996, he added Motorola to the list. It turned out to be a dubious business strategy. Apple got an $80 licensing fee for each computer sold, but instead of expanding the market, the cloners cannibalized the sales of Apple's own high-end computers, on which it made up to $500 in profit. Jobs' objections to the cloning program were not just economic, however. He had an inbred aversion to it. One of his core principles was that hardware and software should be tightly integrated. He loved to control all aspects of his life, and the only way to do that with computers was to take responsibility for the user experience from end to end. So upon his return to Apple, he made killing the Macintosh clones a priority. When a new version of the Mac operating system shipped in July 1997, Weeks after he had helped oust Emilio, Jobs did not allow the clone makers to upgrade to it. The head of power computing, Stephen King Kong, organized pro-cloning protests when Jobs appeared at Boston Macworld that August and publicly warned that the Macintosh OS would die if Jobs declined to keep licensing it out. If the platform goes closed, it is over, Kong said. Total destruction. Closed is the kiss of death. Jobs disagreed. He telephoned Ed Wooler to say he was getting Apple out of the licensing business. The board acquiesced, and in September he reached a deal to pay Power Computing $100 million to relinquish its license and give Apple access to its database of customers. He soon terminated the licenses of the other cloners as well. It was the dumbest thing in the world to let companies making crappier hardware use our operating system and cut into our sales, he later said. Product Line Review